thank you so very much for the invitation to come out. It's always a joy to be here in every way, and the attention to everything this morning was just a delight. How many of you, just by raising hands, how many of you were here this morning for church? The vast majority of you. Great. As you were singing uh, the song, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, and I don't know if it's ever happened to the pastor or not. The Lord said, it's like this is in my head, this is not the message to do tonight. I'm going to change the message. So, give me one moment, or before I'm unplugging, I will be plugged back, and I will close this message here. Okay. Pastor, what you said was instrumental in that. Um, when you said, I stretched your brain, or something like that, uh, that you said, yeah, uh, it really stretched my brain and uh, filled your spirit. And that was just like confirmation to do something different. And I just prayed and prayed while we were, you were singing, and it just kept coming back. This is what I want you to do. Here, so we will do this message. We put it up on the screen, and the Lord also said, "Tell these folks how you got saved, if that would be of interest to you or not." Okay. Voila, Nola, Voila. Okay. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so you, all of you young people here, where your folks are taking you to church, you are really, really blessed. You have parents that just want you to grow up in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. My mom and dad were wonderful. I love them dearly. My mom went to, she passed away, and my dad is uh, 88. And just wonderful, wonderful parents. But we never went to church, and I never went to church. That means I did not go on at Christmas time. I did not go at Easter. I didn't go to church. I believed in God, but I never went to church. And all of that changed and the, due to the sovereignty of the Lord and by a change in a school policy. From 10th grade until I was a senior in high school, I skipped lunch every day. And I, I took a class I went to. This is going to date me a little bit. Woodshop. I skipped lunch so I could go and work on those tools and build things. I was a woodshop junkie. And, uh, and I just loved it. And I took the class, but even when I wasn't in the class, the, uh, the teacher let me come in at lunchtime and build things. And then the school policy at my last semester of my senior year said, unless you were actually enrolled in woodshop, you could not go in and use the equipment and take the class. So I had to do something that I hadn't done in a long time, and that was go to lunch. And so I remember how you do it. You get in the line, and you get those you get those trays, right? And they have all the little spaces where they throw the food. And I went through, and they, they plopped something in one of the slots, plopped something in. And I remember thinking, boy, I haven't been missing much over all these times. And so I had my tray in my hand. And this was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So you probably must know someone for the first time from Wyoming. And I looked out. We had a rather large uh, high school and hundreds of students in the commons area, all 
tables. And so I'm a young man, and I'm looking out over lunch for the first time, and what am I looking for? I'm a young man. I'm looking for a, a girl. Of course, there you go. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah, that isn't that ancient history. So I'm looking for a girl, of course. But I have my tray, and I look around, and I spy a gal, and I, I'm going to go over and sit next to her. So I sat down next to her, and over the course of the next few minutes, I started to joke with her and tease with her and joke and tease, and that's called what? Flirting. Good. All right. It's coming back. Some of you are like, flirt, flirt, what is that? Yeah, flirting. So I flirted with her. And gals, you might have already figured this out, but if not, I'll let the secret out. Guys never flirt without a purpose. There's always, hey man, there you go. There's always a purpose to the flirting. There's a goal that you want. And the goal is to get the girl to say yes. So that means you ask her, if you're a good flirter, she'll say yes. So after several days of applying my flirting prowess to her, I ask her, huh, this will also date me too, would you like to go roller skating with me on Friday nights? Yeah, roller skating. Young people, those are shoes with wheels on the bottom of it. Now, what was good about roller skating is if she says yes, then you get to do what? Hold hands. Well, the gal I asked when I was flirting with had uh, just become a Christian only about six months before my asking her. And her Sunday school teacher told her that she should only date Christian guys. But she's a new Christian. She doesn't know the tests. So she said, well, I'll go roller skating if you come to church with me on Sunday. In her mind, she, said, she thinks if I say yes, that's because I'm a Christian. I said, sure, I'll go to church with you. Not because I was a Christian, but because I thought, wow, guaranteed second date. That was in my brain, you know. I mess up on Friday, I'll rebound on Sunday. And besides, I knew they didn't really go to church or anything like that, so no harm, no foul. So I went to church with her on Sunday. She went to a church that had this weird name, the Berean Fundamental Church. It wasn't like Catholic or Protestant or anything like that. And I heard the gospel for the first time in my life, and it went in one ear and out the other. It just didn't mean anything to me, but I still liked her. So I asked her again, hey, would you like to get pizza with me on Friday? And she said, I will if you come to church with me on Sunday. I don't know. This is the easiest date ever. I mean, what a, what a little trade there. So we went and got pizza, had a really good time. We got in the car, I drove, and I drove back to her house, and I turned off the car keys, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she said, Randy, there's something I need to tell you. And I'm thinking, oh, best guy she's ever dated, best time she's ever had. Something was best in the sentence, so it's surely going to be there. And she said, Randy, you're going to hell. And I thought, what? <laughs> I'm going to hell? I mean, wow, I've had a bad day before, but it never merited hell. And I said, so, well, why am I going to hell? And she said, because you're a sinner. And I said, I'm not a sinner. Sinners are in prison. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, I'm a really what? Good person. So I started to defend myself. And I said, I obey the law. I obey my parents. I obey my teachers. I don't do drugs. I'm a really good person. And she said, well, 
you may be a good person compared to other people, but, and then she had this, like, this low blow. She said, but do you have the righteousness of Christ? Who's got the right, and this is what I said, who's got the righteousness of Christ but Christ? And she said, I do. Now look, this is really bad. You've got the righteousness of Christ. I'm a sinner, and I bought the pizza. How is this, I mean, how did this all work out on that? And, and I kept dating her, and every Friday night, this flogging just continued over and over on that. And then, of all things, we're graduating from high school. And guess what she buys me for graduation present? A Bible, of course. And not only this, she, she gives it to me in front of everybody. And then she opens it up and says, smells like leather. And uh, I thought, wow. And she had highlighted verses in the Bible. Highlighted verses. And one of them said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And by this time, that was sinking in. The part that I was a pretty good person was cracking. I'd been listening to what they said at church. I kept going to church. I kept. I read some things in the Bible, and I knew I was a sinner. By this time, it's like, wow, I really do simple things. I say things. I think things. I look at things. I talk about things, and God can read my thoughts. So I, I the sinner part was coming in. I, I am a sinner. On that. And then she had another verse that she had highlighted just a few pages over. For the wages of sin is death. Death. I could understand that part too. I had a pretty harsh dad, and I understood punishment. I understood punishment for sin. But the other part was, was a little more difficult. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ my Lord. It was the gift part that I was struggling with because in my mind, I still felt I needed to do something to merit God's favor. I needed to do something to please Him. I needed to do something that would earn, earn this place in the heaven. And the whole idea of a gift was still, still somewhat a bit foreign to me. And she had highlighted another verse which seemed to really clear that up for me. It said, For God made Him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And that's when I started to understand, oh, there's an exchange. This gift is because there's an exchange. My sins were placed on Him. His righteousness is given to me. This is how I can have the righteousness of Christ. What an exchange. It's a free gift, but it wasn't a gift without a price. It was a gift with a real price. And he paid that price for me. And then she had highlighted another verse in the book of John where the Lord Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation but has passed from death unto life. And I remember reading that and reading that in our living room after I graduated, and I thought, I want this life. I want this life. And I remember getting down on my knees on a chair in my living room and saying, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve that punishment. I deserve that help. Please come into my life. Forgive me of my 
my sins. I will follow you, be my Lord and Savior. And I remember getting up off my knees and I was born again. Born again. Amen. Change from that point on. Wow, the angels are rejoicing I now know over that. And my life has changed. And that was the first step to getting here tonight. All because a young gal was caring enough and loving enough to tell me what I needed to hear, but I didn't want to hear what I needed to hear. And there may be some of you here tonight who need to hear that same message. But you're a sinner too. You're under that same condemnation and you can have that same eternal life, that same forgiveness by that same exchange of your sins for His righteousness. And you can, you can bank on that. That is a certainty. And for Christians, if you're here tonight, this is one thing. Be bold in your witness. Be bold in your witness. You never know whose life you're going to change by doing that. Open up and tell these folks about Christ. Now, I know at least half the room here are wondering, whatever happened to that gal? Whatever happened to that gal? Well, I continue to date her, and about a year later, I asked her, what? Would you marry me? And she said, I told you I'm a good flirter. <laughs> I'm a good flirter. Of course she said yes. She said yes. And we got married just a few months later. And this May, it will be, I can't believe it, 45 years. 45 years together. So, praise the Lord. She would have been here tonight. Um, she normally comes with me on all those trips. Her name is June. But she had her hip replaced. Uh, so it got worn out, and she had to have her hip replacement. And so she's a little hobbly on that. But by the end of the month, she'll be going on trips, and she can carry book boxes and stuff like that. So all those things along those lines. Well, tonight's message is about being bold in your witness. Being bold in your witness. And it's called Five Minutes with a Darwinist. Five Minutes with a Darwinist. Exposing the Fluff of Evolution. And this, is, this isn't like Texas-style five minutes with a Darwinist. We're down in Texas, they say, you just give me five minutes with a Darwinist. You know, they're like, punch them up and all this stuff. No, this isn't, this isn't having your way with them. This is, this is sharing your faith and explaining why you're not convinced that Darwinian evolution is the explanation for why you are here today. So, five minutes with a Darwinist exposing the fluff of evolution. Fluff. You know what that is. That's just an acronym. Or another title for this message is, Your Friend Thinks He's Related to a Chimp. Now what? Now what are you going to do on those things? So, you need an effective method to talk with your friends who believe in evolution. If someone believes with all their hearts, I did for one time. And FLUFF stands for an acronym. You can, you can kind of keep it in your mind. Evolution is more air than substance. More air than substance. So, F. Focus the discussion. Focus the discussion. If you are like my wife, you are a chronic note taker. I mean, she takes notes and you don't have to take notes. Not me. We have a little booklet out at the table that has all of this in it. So if, how much is this, Bruce? One dollar. One dollar. I mean, if, if someone said, I could get something without taking notes for a buck, my pen would be on the table, and I would not be taking notes. My wife would 
buy the book and still take notes. But anyway, in the book. So, if you don't want to take notes and you want it, it's out of the table. It's only a buck. And you can sit back and just listen. F, focus of discussion. That means we're going to define some terms. L, a phrase we need to work into our vocabulary. Less than persuaded. Less than persuaded. U, unobserved important events. Unobserved important events. F, failed mechanism for design. And then another F, freedom found in creation science. You can memorize this. This is easy. It's easy to put this in your brain with a little bit of practice. I use it myself. I get calls. Hey, would you do a radio interview? Sure. What do you want to talk about? Oh, just talk about evolution. This comes to my mind. When the interviewer comes, I jump into this. I focus the discussion, less than persuaded, all of those kinds of things. So it's really, really useful. Okay. F. Oh, five minutes with the Darwinist. There's a little advertisement for that book. Focus the discussion. Focus the discussion. Why? Because time is limited, so we need to define some terms and we need to use some reputable sources. Because sometimes you're going to say evolution means this, and then I say, well, where'd you get that definition? Who came up with that? In fact, I was at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, and one of the professors challenged me on a definition right away, and I'll tell you where I got my definition. The first thing we need to define, and we only need to define two terms, is evolution. Evolution. Now, a lot of people use different words for evolution. They mean, they say, well, it just means change over time or change. We all believe things change over time. Some of you can look in the mirror and you can say, wow, have I changed over time in those things? So we all believe that, so nobody debates that. But here's a reputable source, the National Association of Biology Teachers. This is the world's largest biology group, over 12,000 members. And they said this, the diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution. That's a pretty good definition. That's pretty specific. The diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution. They don't know what Darwin was really after, having attended this morning's lecture. You know that Darwin was not to explain the diversity of life on Earth. He wanted to explain what? The design of life. The design. Why we're so complicated and fit our environment. That's what evolutionists need to explain. These folks are a little confused, but this is pretty good. So, if I was talking to somebody, I would say, now, when I'm talking about evolution, I'm talking about something that explains the diversity of life on Earth. Because they say, where'd you get that? Well, that's right from the National Association of Biology Teachers, and they should know. Evolution is supposed to explain the diversity of life on Earth. Now, that is a pretty extraordinary claim, and there should be some pretty extraordinary evidence to back it up. And we're going to see that they really don't have that evidence. Second... The second term we need to define is science. What are you talking about when you talk about science? Well, I'm talking about the same thing we all learned in school. Science is based on observation and testing. Observation and testing. That's what science is based on, and that's a pretty good definition for that. Now, where would you get that? How about this? A view from the National Academy of Sciences. That's a pretty good source in their book, Science on Creationism. And they say this. Scientific investigators seek to understand natural phenomena by observation and experimentation. 
scientific interpretations of facts and explanations that account for them, therefore must be testable by observation and experimentation. Maybe a little shorter word than experimentation is testing. So, I hold that science is based on observation and testing. Observation and testing. All right. This is quiz time. A little quiz time here. You notice I like quiz time. It's a good time because I said you can get this down with a little bit of practice. A little bit of practice. Now I'm looking over the room and it divides right down the middle here. Over here, over here. It looks like this side, this side is a few more people than that side. Okay, so for tonight, since you guys have a bunch more over here, for tonight, and only for tonight, you guys get to be the smart side. Smart side over here, this side, smart side. And for tonight, you guys are the dumb side. Okay? Dumb side. Dumb side. Now, I'm sorry, Pastor. You just happen to be on the short straw, but uh, not, if my wife is here, whatever side she's sitting on is by definition the smart side. But she's not here tonight. Okay, smart side, dumb side. All right, smart side. Smart side. Evolution is supposed to explain what? All right, smart side, smart side. Evolution is supposed to explain what the, 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 the diversity of life on Earth. The diversity of life on Earth. Smart side. Evolution is supposed to explain the diversity of life on Earth. Okay, dumb side. Science is based on observation and? Right, right up there on the screen. Perfect. There you go. Observation and testing. Observation and testing. Good job. Good job, dumb side. All right. There we go. Okay. Next term, less than persuaded. Next, less than persuaded. Now, I put a catchy picture up there on the screen to help you remember it. Does this gal look less than persuaded? Yes. She's less than persuaded. <laughs> Men can't even make that look. Uh, you know, we can't make it, but women make it all the time. And they usually make it when they're listening to something that what? A man's telling them. And then they give you this look like, what? What are you saying? This is the less than persuaded look. Less than persuaded look. So we want to work this phrase into our vocabulary here. Less than persuaded means, oh, this feels a little skeptical. We've been listening to the evidence, but... It just doesn't make sense. And we do not want to begin our conversation with, well, I just don't believe in evolution. That's, you know what that is? That's a conversation stopper. It's not a conversation starter. Well, I just don't, I, I know you don't do it. So please resist the temptation to start the conversation with, well, I just don't believe in it. Because they're going to say about creation, well, I just don't believe in that either. And then you, you hit a deadlock, you're not talking with each other, you're hit an impasse, and you might as well be in Congress. You know, you're just not getting anything done on those lines. So, we don't want to begin with that. We want to indicate that we've been listening carefully, watching carefully, and saying less than persuaded seems to indicate a willingness to be convinced and believe that's this idea of uh, not kind of magic in the ears of some people, 
that you believe in Santa Claus, you believe in this, you believe in that. So it has that. So we don't want to do that. We want to work in the place, less than persuaded. We're less than persuaded because evolution is supposed to explain the diversity of life on Earth, which we now know. Therefore, evolution is not what you've been hearing, just a huge diversity within one type of creature. Evolution is not changes in the lengths of finch beaks, which we learned this morning is a controlled, regulated process. We learned that this morning. But even if it wasn't, I want to know where finches came from, not their beaks. In fact, I'd like to know where the cells come from that make finch beak material. It's not changes in peppered moss, which we also learned this morning was a regulated process. It's not similarities in body parts. You'll see this in your textbook. You know, I have two bones in my lower arm, one bone in my upper arm, just like a dog, just like other creatures on that. You know, that is an evidence for evolution. I can explain that through design. What I'd like to know is where do the dogs, where do the people come from, or even better yet, where did bones come from? Explain to me the evolution of a bone. You know, there's more information in a bone than there would be to build the entire city of Levi. <clears throat> That's quite remarkable. Resistance of bacteria to antibiotics, where did the bacteria come from? This is the principal evidence that you're going to get in textbook after textbook after textbook. But it's not explaining even the diversity of life on Earth. Less than persuaded. Even the chimps are a little skeptical here. Because what I get when I really look at the textbooks and I <clears throat> listen to it on NOVA or National Geographic, I hear a lot of stories, I hear a lot of speculation, I get a lot of imagination. There's an increasing amount of special effects where they can take and almost, almost just completely lie to your children by showing some wolf-like creature walk into the water and morph into a whale right before their very eyes. That isn't the evidence that we're looking for because it's not real. We've heard it in the classroom and we've seen it on television. I'm less than persuaded on there because... Now that is a skeptical kid on that. That is one skeptical look on that. I mean, could you imagine raising that for the next 18 years on there? What? I mean, if they come out of the womb looking like that, just imagine, because evolution does not meet our criteria for science. Lesson persuaded is a really good phrase. It's very disarming, and we can use it in a disarming way. It, it doesn't say that you just have rejected it. It doesn't say that you haven't thought about it. It doesn't say anything. It says, I've been paying attention. I've been paying attention, and it hasn't changed my mind. And these are the reasons it hasn't changed my mind. Because you're supposed to explain the diversity of life on Earth, and every bit of evidence you give me doesn't do it. A reasonable person would be less than persuaded. Okay. Quiz time. Quiz time. Quiz time. Let's start, start over here with the smart side. All right? Smart side. Smart side. Evolution is supposed to explain the? Good, good. That was it. That was a little more like responsive reading in this case. Supposed to explain the diversity of life on Earth. Great. All right. There's a phrase we want to work out 
of our vocabulary. We don't want to begin our conversation with it. And that phrase was? Yeah, that's right. I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe in evolution. I was looking to make sure you heard the evolution part, because sometimes people just say, I don't believe. I don't believe. But we want to say, no, we don't want to say, I don't believe in evolution. Okay, dumb science. Science is based on? Observation and testing. You were you were just about you were just about there, halfway there. Science is based on observation and testing. Okay, we want to work into our vocabulary a phrase, and that phrase I've been listening, but I am. That was. Did you catch that? That was really good. That was like really unified in, in everything. They're like speaking in tongues, but you're like. Uh, I mean, this is really, really good. So, okay, we are less than persuaded because of some unobserved important events. And you only need to remember two, two of those. And we covered both of them in church today. First was this, an unobserved natural origin of life. I mean, if you're... Theory is going to explain the diversity of life on Earth. You've got to get life going. You've got to explain that. But no one saw it happen, obviously. But this is more important. Nobody is close to duplicating it. And nobody is close to explaining it. Why? Because I mentioned this morning in church and in Sunday school that all living things do Four functions. There's four important functions about living things. Remember what those functions were. All living things grow. All living things reproduce. All living things metabolize. And all living things adapt. All living things do that. They grow, they metabolize, they reproduce, and they adapt. And every one of those is incredibly hard to explain. Incredibly hard. For in other words, how can you grow until you have energy? And in order to get energy, you have to be able to metabolize. That means you have to be able to take resources in from the environment, convert them to energy, and not only that, you take the resources in and you convert them to building blocks. You take food and suddenly it becomes part of you. Some of you are saying, boy, does it. Anyway, you take the food and it becomes part of you. That's metabolism. You need that energy. You can't grow until you can do those kinds of things. But you're not going to be able to metabolize until you have information in there to enable you to do it. And you're not going to be able to evolve until you can reproduce. I mean, until you can reproduce, I mean, how many, how many, how many, uh, generations of offspring can you even get? None. And you can't evolve until you can adapt. But you can't get your ability to adapt by adapt by adapting. You know what I'm saying? You can't adapt yourself to be adaptable. You have to be adaptable to begin with. So every one of these, every one of these functions is like a chicken and egg scenario. You need to be able to adapt. But you can't get your adaptability by adaptation. You have to be able to reproduce. 
And not only that, you have chicken eggs theory between all of those functions. That is why explaining life is so hard. And that's why this paper, which came out in 2011, which has this headline, inside the American, don't tell the creationists that scientists don't have a clue of how life began. He's, he's a science reporter, and he's reporting at that time on the largest convention to explain the origin of life. And it hasn't changed. And if you have really, really good eyes, you can read the first sentence that says, exactly 20 years ago, he went to another convention, and he had this, re- he had this headline, and his editor wouldn't let him do it. You know what I can predict 20 years from now? He could have the same headline. And by the way, why is it... Don't tell the creationists. I thought you guys wanted to follow the evidence wherever it leads. Why would you even try to suppress that from us? Besides, we can read too. So, nobody has a clue about began. Second, there is not a mechanism. Okay, smart side. Here is the clue. This will be your question. There is not a mechanism known with the ability to transform a creature, here's the key words, to a fundamentally different kind of creature. A mechanism to transform one creature to a fundamentally different kind. Why am I saying fundamentally different? Because I don't want to see a diversity of bacteria. I want to see fundamentally different. In fact, speaking of bacteria, I'd like to even see a mechanism which could convert a strep to a staph. That's not even there. You know what strep bacteria always reproduce? Strep, staph, staph, vibrio, vibrio. All of them. They reproduce faithfully after their kind. So I want to see some mechanism that can change something to a fundamentally different kind. Unobserved important events, one, natural origin of life, and two, an ability to change one creature to a fundamentally different kind. Not simply diversities in animals like this like this football player type of dog on the left and the egghead dog on the right. Hmm. And this isn't it either. This is a paper published way back when Lenski was running the world's largest evolution experiment. And he ran it for almost 80,000 generations. But when he published his paper, he was up to 50,000 generations where they grew E. coli bacteria, took off 90% at the beginning of the day, froze those, cultured the remaining 10%, did that day after day after day for years. It went on well over 35 years. And at this time, after 50,000 generations, he had this salute to Charles Darwin, and I have no idea why. Because after 50,000 generations, the bacteria are still what? Bacteria. Wow. That is really evolution in action right there. Okay, quiz time. Quiz time. To show that I'm fair, I'm going to start with the dumb side over here. Okay. Boy, you guys are making the smart side look pretty bad. Oh, man. Okay, dumb side. I'll mix up the questions. Evolution is supposed to explain what? Great. The diversity of life on Earth. Diversity of life on Earth. You want to work into your vocabulary an important phrase. That is, we are listening to the evidence, but we are 
less than persuaded, less than persuaded. We're less than persuaded because of two important events. The first of which is a natural origin of great. Now, is that one word answers? That's what I like. Natural origin of what? Okay, smart side. You up to the challenge? Oh, man. Oh, no. Oh, change sides. Uh, that's what you need to do. Boom. Migrate over here on that. On there. Okay, smart side. Um, you got me off on my questions. All right. Science. Science is based on? All right. Did anybody up in the upper row say that? Are you letting these guys carry all the load down here on that? Science is based on observation and testing. Testing. All right. Um, we work in our vocabulary. We're less than persuaded because of two unobserved important events. The first is the natural origin of life, and the second is a mechanism, a mechanism, a mechanism to change one creature to a Great. All right. Smart side. Good deal. All right. You can stay. There you go. All right. Good deal. Fundamentally different kind. All right. This one is the hardest part to explain. Failed mechanism for design. But you guys have a leg up because we covered it in Sunday school and church this morning. Failed mechanism for design. Everybody agrees that organisms look designed. There are some people who say, oh, there's bad design, there's flawed design, there's things. But even amongst evolutionists, there are a real minority. So almost everybody agrees that organisms look really, really designed. Creationists say organisms look designed because they were designed. You know, we have the easy, easy job. When we're sharing our faith, the Lord has made it easy for us because everybody naturally sees that. There are papers and there are studies which look at cultures all over the world. Cultures all over the world in, in all the different continents. And essentially this is what they find. Particularly with children. And children that are old enough to kind of understand things between the ages of 6 and 10. 6 and 10. So if I go to children on any continent and I were to take a cat and I were to come up to these children and say, where did this cat come from? You know what children automatically say? God made it. God made it. South America, Asia, Africa, God made this cat. That's what their initial explanation is, is that God made that. Nobody really even has to teach them or tell them, they just believe it. And it takes a lot of effort through educational institutions to rip that out of their brain and replace it with something else. Because we intuitively see the design. We intuitively infer that there was a, a designer. That makes sense. So we actually have the easy job. Evolutionists have to take something like a cat that is incredibly complicated and tell everybody that it came about through a random, non-purposeful, disorganized, chaotic process which is really, really counterintuitive, isn't it? It's terribly counterintuitive. And the only way they do that 
is by a relentless, relentless drumbeat, year after year, program after program, textbook after textbook, of telling you random genetic mutations happen, which are somehow selected, mystically selected by nature, which can do this. And, and not only do they do it in a relentless drumbeat, they get the best scientists with the best credentials in the world, and they stand up and they tell you, this is true, this is how it happened, random genetic mistakes over long periods of time, some of which were very, very fortunate to be useful in solving problems, were selected by nature, that creature was favored, it went on to reproduce, and over long periods of time, not only did you get the diversity of life on Earth, but as these creatures are formed and shaped to fit their environment, they become exquisitely designed to do their purposes. And as soon as people say, that must be true, that's how it is, they immediately reject the designer because no rational thinking engineer would ever use a purposeless, chaotic, random process with a bunch of broken genes and broken systems to build anything. Nobody would do that. So when you tell people that over and over again, you are implicitly saying there was no engineering designer who created life. Because people know that's crazy to use a system like that. And it sounds an awful lot like evolution. And that's how they get people to believe it. It is a long, concerted effort to do it, but it's been highly, highly successful. They coupled with the fact that, you know, the really smart people believe that this is how it happened. And it's only those dodo creationists who believe that an intelligent engineer made all of this engineering. The smart people believe it came about through a random, purposeless process. And nobody wants to be thought of as dumb. And so there's a pride factor in there. Point number three is they enforce it. They enforce it on college campuses. They enforce it throughout their professional by, if you dare to believe this, no grants for you, no funding for you, no promotion for you. You will be professionally shunned and scorned and cut out. So even people who may begin to question it know for their professional sakes they better not say a thing. And so years and years before we even were talking about cancel culture, the evolutionists had already perfected the mechanism of cancel culture and were wielding the sword on scientists for decades. And nobody said a thing because it was just those creationists who were being canceled. But like all of these policies, it begins to bloom and blossom, and now you're going to be canceled for whatever. If you're just not woke, that's how it all happens. So, evolutionists go by this. Evolution is due to these random chance mutations. You see that up in quotes, chance historical contingencies and changing environments. That's taken right from the National Academy of Science, excuse me, from the National Association of Biology Teachers. And they say that that applies to both evolution and their concept of natural selection. 
Unless you really can't explain it. Really can't. Why? First of all, what we really know about mutations is that they, real, excuse me, real, real mutations really break things. Real mutations break things. So let me explain the term mutation. When you hear the, when you hear the word mutation, you're thinking of broken genes, accidental changes, copying errors, something that you don't want. But professionally, the word mutation can mean any change in DNA, whether it's purposeful or non-purposeful. But what the average person hears and thinks of a mutation is something broken, something gone wrong. Am I right? But they use the words like evolutionists do, just like evolution, they equivocate on their definitions. So what I'm talking about are true copy errors, true mistakes that nobody wants. Nobody wants. Do you know what those real mutations cause? They cause disease. They cause cancer. And that's why when you go into the dentist and you're going to get your teeth x-rayed, there comes some little dental technician. And it's usually a gal. And she comes walking out and she's carrying what? A lead apron. A lead apron. And she throws it over your lap. Boom. Drops it on your lap. And that lead apron is to protect what? It's to protect your gonads from being irradiated. Nobody wants their gonads irradiated. Not even evolutionists. On that. Because it causes damage. On that. If they really believe this, a real evolutionist, when the, when the gal came out with the lead apron, would do what? Get that baby off me. Irradiate away. But nobody does that. What's really happening in terms of adaptation is directed genetic changes. All right. So those things cause disease. And then natural selection. Here's a little phrase. Show me the selection. Show me the selector. No intelligence in nature to select. It's just a label that's applied to creatures and native ability. Let me explain this. How in the world did Darwin ever get the concept and the term natural selection? Well, contrary to what people are saying, Nobody was thinking of natural selection before Charles Darwin. People could see that environments changed, and some creatures lived, and some creatures didn't. That's all there is. There's many explanations for that. What did Charles Darwin bring into this concept of natural selection that was new? He brought in several things. First, he compared nature to a human breeder. At the time, he was watching pigeon breeders. He was watching these people who would breed pigeons, and he noticed that when pigeon breeders would select for certain traits, that these pigeons would end up looking radically different than the pigeons before them. And over a period of time of selecting for traits, you end up with huge varieties of pigeons because the breeders were selecting for certain traits. And he reasoned, maybe if nature if nature could act like a breeder and select for traits, and if you can get this big variety of pigeons over a short period of time, maybe nature over a really, really, really long period of time could get something that wasn't even a pigeon anymore. Well, that analogy is fundamentally flawed, and people initially caught the flaw in the analogy, but over time, everybody has missed it. 
Why is the analogy flawed? Well, this is why. Breeders, human breeders, have a real brain, real intelligence, and real volition. That means the ability to make choices. Real intelligence, real volition. We can really do it. God can do it. Even your dog can do it. Your dog has volition, doesn't it? Why not a dog that has volition? And I had this little pug, and I would, I, would, I would give her her pill that she needed to take, and I would hide it in her food. And then she'd come in and eat the food, and I'd come back and guess what was laying in the bowl? The pill. I'm like, that's volition. I'm not going to eat that pill for those things. But does nature have anything equivalent to a human brain that you would ever apply the term selection to it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I know some of you are thinking, it does. It doesn't. Nature is full of living creatures, but nature is not alive. Contrary to what a lot of people think. It's not Gaia. It's not alive. It doesn't have a brain. It can't think. It cannot select. So why did, why did Darwin apply the term selection to nature? Because Darwin is to explain the design, and he needs to get God's agency out of the picture. But it's hard to explain the design of creatures without an agent. So he sneaks in another agent, and it is nature itself. And he projects onto nature this agency by projecting onto nature intelligence and volition because he says nature can select. Bingo. You know what? Initially, people said that was utterly foolish. You can't apply selective ability to nature. The head of the French Academy of Sciences <clears throat> said this was silly personifications of nature, where Darwin in his imagination thinks that nature can act like a real human being. That French Academy was right. It's all of us 20th century and 21st century thinkers who somehow believe nature can do this and we're willing to live with this personification of nature. Second thing that Darwin added that nobody else did is he incorporated a man thinking named Malthus. In other words, competition. So Darwin's theory not only has to explain the design of life, he has to explain how it continually gets better. Better. How did he get the idea of, of organisms getting better over time? Well, he said this. For any generation, there are more offspring born than there are resources available to them. What they're saying is limited resources more offspring, therefore the offspring must do what? Compete with one another in a struggle to survive, and the one who wins this struggle to survive is therefore the fittest, and therefore the best, the others die, and if that fit one goes on to reproduce, then boom, you have just improved the population. If they do that struggle all over again, then the fittest can boom reproduces, you've improved it, improved it, and that is how he got organisms getting better over time due to this deadly struggle to survive. So he incorporated Malthus, he applied selective abilities to nature, and that's why he has this somewhat persuasive 
theory, but it's flawed. Totally flawed. Nature can't select, nature can't think, it doesn't have volition. And second, the whole idea of this competition and struggles to survive isn't supported by the evidence. It isn't. In fact, I don't know of a single paper which shows one group of creatures driving another group of creatures extinct in a struggle for resources. Have any of you ever seen that? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. There's only one creature on this planet which drives animals to extinction, and it's who? Us. It's us. But you don't see it amongst other creatures. So this is total fantasy. So this, this idea of this natural selector, is just nothing but pure personification in nature. Now, what are the theological implications of this? I covered this already this morning. Okay. When you project selective ability onto nature, and you project onto nature the ability to give birth to life and the ability to have the diversity of life, you have, you have turned nature into a substitute, what? God. A substitute God. So, so Darwin, in spite of all the people saying he explained that the design of life without God, he didn't. He just, he just swapped out one agent for another and brought in a pseudo-agency to nature. And evolutionists use that as a cause over and over again. So this is why it's flawed. I know that took a bit of time, but in many ways that was some of the most important part of this lecture, is understanding Darwin's mechanism and why it is wrong. So, what's the flip side of that? How would you argue positively for design? How would you argue and explain design to other people? Well, first of all, when we look at living creatures, we see patterns. Patterns of design. And how are you going to remember that? How are you going to remember what the patterns of design are? This is how I like you to remember it. When you think about patterns of design, I'd like you to think about going out to your car, turning on the engine, opening the hood, and looking at the engine. What do you see when you see a running engine? What do you see that looks like it's designed? Are you seeing multiple parts working together for a purpose? Yes. You see that. You see multiple parts working together for a purpose. Do you see precise timing? Do you see precise fit and finish for the parts? Do you see a precise order of assembly? Yes. That's what you're seeing when you see an engine. If you can't remember all of those things, just remember this. Multiple parts working together for a purpose. Every time we see multiple parts, it always has an intelligence source. Nature, in spite of Darwin's personification, doesn't put multiple parts working together for a purpose. It never does. It never does. So those are the patterns we're designing. Second, we see complexity that is so staggeringly high to get those multiple parts that the probability of it happening by any random mechanism is essentially zero. 
the more parts that you have to get together to work together, the, the less likely it is to have ever happen by chance. And then third, we see all or nothing unity. In other words, unless all the parts are together at the right place in the right time in the right amount, you're not going to get a product. Now, how are you going to remember that? How are you going to remember all or nothing unity? Well, this is an easy one. Reproduction. Reproduction. Why is it easy? Because most everyone in this room understands it. Most everyone has been taught about it. You understand it. Your evolutionary friends understand it. And they know, as well as you know, that unless you have all of the right parts working together, I'm not talking about just dad's parts and mom's parts. I'm talking about baby's parts. I'm talking about how baby in the womb relates to mom. Unless you have all of those parts working together, you are not going to get offspring, and if you don't get offspring, evolution comes to a grinding halt. It's over. It's over. You need all of those parts. And by the way, moms, baby interacts with you in, a, in, a, in just an incredibly tight way. In fact, you, your body doesn't even know it's pregnant until that fertilized egg sends signals to your body saying, you are now pregnant. And from the moment of that fertilization, baby takes over. And baby begins to modulate everything in your body. And I hate to tell you, you are not building a baby. Baby is building itself inside of you. You know what you're providing? Resources. Resources. Baby takes those resources, baby builds itself. And then, when it's time to deliver, baby says, I'm getting out. And baby sends signals to your body that says, go into labor. That's how it works. Baby kind of runs the show on all of these things. Mom knows that. Anyway, it's quite remarkable. So, you can say, I am persuaded that when the two mechanisms of evolution and creation are put to head-to-head test, the creation science makes better observations, explains the observations in the two better. Here's how I remember it. Oh, there we go. That, that is a, this is just a shameful way, shameless way for me to get a picture of my son into my talk on there. And you see, you know what that is? That's the goal line, that line on the ground with the goal line. And these are two crosstown rivals. And my son is number 30, who's putting this, this tremendous hit on that guy carrying the ball and dropped him, bang, right there. It was like they hit for around the world. And this picture was on the front pages of our newspaper there. My son suffered terrible brain damage because of that. No, he didn't. But it was just a, it was just a great, great hit. Hit the hit. And then finally, the freedom found in creation science. You know, we're really the ones who follow the evidence wherever it leads. We have a real type of freedom that I'm not really worried about anything evolution overturning my faith. So I might end my conversation with them. Let me detail a few positive aspects of creation science. First, as I already said, the freedom to follow the evidence wherever it leads and to never stop discovering. 
Creationists are the ones who follow the evidence, not the evolutionists. Here's a couple examples. In Kansas, in the 1990s, there was a debate over creation or evolution in the schools, and Scott Todd, published in Nature, the world's leading scientific journal, said this, Even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. Wait a second. How many other areas of science function like that? If all the data point to something, you exclude it. Before I went to medical school, I was an engineer. What if, since we're in a building here with a big span over our heads, what if I could tell you, you know, we tested the we tested the beams in this roof, and all of our testing indicates they're going to fail with a one-foot snow load. But we're excluding that data and come sit under the beams. How about, as a medical doctor, I said to you, you know, all of your signs, all of your symptoms, all of your testing, all of the imaging that I've done, all of that indicates you've got this deadly disease. But I'm excluding that data because it's not naturalistic. Nobody does that. Nobody excludes data like that. There was another man, he's not even a young life creationist, his name was Guillermo Gonzalez. He's, a, he's, an astro, he's an astrophysicist, and he thinks he sees some design out in nature. And he was denied tenure in college because he believed that. Adam Rutherford said, saying whether in 4004 B.C., that's pretty much my position, or 13 billion years ago, that was Guillermo Gonzalez's position, that God made it is not falsifiable and therefore not science. I know that were I in a position to offer Guillermo Gonzalez tenure, I would deny it for the precise reason that is, yes, religious views about purpose in the universe explicitly mean that he is a doo-doo scientist regardless of his ability to generate valid data. Oh. I told you, cancel culture was in effect long before it ever came up. I, I, this is not good science, and I don't like it. I like the ability to follow the evidence for every week. Second, I like the freedom from magical words. And every one of these words that you see on the screen, I took from technical papers, scientific papers, and they get repeated over and over again. These words like what? Emerged, arose, appeared, gave rise to, evolved. All of those things, including lucky. You know why evolutionists use the words like arose, emerged, gave rise to? Because those words cover up a mountain of missing data. Missing data. If you don't know how something works, you can just say, it arose. If you, if you can't explain to me the mechanism, it emerged. It evolved to do something. These are magical words. Engineers don't use these words. Medical doctors don't use these words. Anybody who has to do real science don't use these magical words. But evolutionists use them all the time. And you know what? People get away with it. When, you know, when a peer-reviewed paper says something arose, if I was a peer-reviewed, I'd circle and say, How? Explain it. But he gets a pass because it's evolutionary. You know what I'd love to sell out of their book table out there? I'd love to sell a little cricket. It was a thing that, when I was a kid, had a piece of metal that was kind of bent, and it had a, had a cap on 
you guys are really religious. I would just ask him, Dr. Say, not very respectfully, what experiment did you do and what paper did you publish that in? You never did an experiment. I mean, how could you ever do an experiment? Would the experiment ever end? It would never end. Nobody could do this. This is this is Sagan's religious views. How about this one by Michael Shermer in, in 2002, Scientific American, speaking of Richard Dawkins. He says, in one of the most existentially penetrating statements ever made by a scientist, Richard Dawkins concluded that, quote, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect that there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Hmm. Dr. Dawkins, you said there's no purpose, no design. What experiment did you do to demonstrate there was no purpose? You can't do an experiment like that. This is Dawkins' religious view of the universe. And then Stephen Hawking, you know, he passed away just a few years ago. He was believed to be one of the smartest men on the planet. And Stephen Hawking says there is no heaven. Stephen Hawking says there is no heaven, and they quote Stephen Hawking saying this. Stephen Hawking, the world-renowned theoretical physicist, finds no room for heaven in his view of the cosmos. The 69-year-old says, quote, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers. He's calling your brain a computer, and when you die, it's a broken-down computer. He adds, that is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Hmm. You know what? People listen to that. They accept it because he's a scientific authority. And many young people on the college say, Stephen Hawking says there is no heaven, therefore there must not be any heaven. People put a lot of weight on what scientific authorities say. But I would say, Dr. Hawking, what experiment did you do? I mean, how could you even do such an experiment? Stephen Hawking would have to be alive, and then he'd have to what? Die? No heaven. And then he has to do what? Come back and then tell everybody, hey, I died, there was no heaven. He can't do such a thing. That's crazy. I mean, we need to see through this stuff and see exactly what it is. It's religious statements masquerading as science. But let me ask you this. After having this talk, how many of you would like to talk to Stephen Hawking? How many of you would like to have a chance to talk with him? I would. I would have had a, a, a chance to talk with him. I would say, Stephen Hawking, you believe this, but you know as well as I do that you can't do an experiment on this. You're telling everybody just your opinion. Is that not true? Hawking, you're a scientist. Tell me. Is that not true? And he would know from one scientist to the other that isn't true. And I would tell him, you know, you're talking about evolution, which is supposed to explain the diversity of life on Earth, but I've been listening very carefully, and I have not seen any evidence that explains the diversity of life on Earth, the diversity of someone's type of creatures. Yes, diversity of fish beaks. Yes, but not that. And I've been listening very carefully, and I am really less than persuaded that you have that you have really presented a good scientific case for why I should accept your evolutionary scenario. Dr. Hawking, you know as well as I do that nobody on this planet has ever published a paper documenting the natural, the natural origin of life. And Dr. Hawking, you know as well as I do that nobody on this planet has ever observed one creature.
to change into a fundamental type. So Dr. Hoffman, what I'm doing is I'm pulling apart as a scientist to another, as a person talking to a scientist, all of the scientific backing for why you say that there isn't a heaven on earth. And Dr. Hoffman, you know when you look at creatures, you see these multiple parts working together for purpose, and you have never seen nature put this together unless you cheat and already start with a living thing. You start with something that is non-living, you've never seen nature build any of these kinds of things. And so, Dr. Hawking, I am really less than persuaded that I should believe that there isn't a heaven just because you say so. In fact, I think you should consider that there may be a heaven. And you say, I want to believe in heaven because I'm afraid of the dark. But, Dr. Hawking, could it be that you say there is no heaven because you're afraid of meeting your creator? Maybe you Maybe the fear could be on your part. And so, Dr. Hoffman, if you just give me just a few more minutes, I would like to tell you about that Creator. And that Creator is the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only made you, but died to save you. Now, wouldn't you like to have a conversation with Dr. Hoffman along those lines? I would. And that's why we're here. And that's why this conference is so important. Thank you for letting me change my talk. At the last minute, I think it was up to the Lord to do that on these things. And what did you, you what did you do out of the table? Sign up for this free magazine. Are you going to remember everything I said? Are you going to remember all the science? Um, probably not. Not even Stephen Hawking would do such a thing. This is absolutely free. Please sign up and equip your families with it. If you want to. Memorize this talk. Grab this little booklet for a buck. If there's something that you want to watch, I'm not I'm not really big into these things, but we have really spent a lot of time improving our podcasts and our YouTube. They're very very educational. We have a DVD out there called Adam and Eggs, and it's posted on this. You can watch it for free, or you can get the DVD to share with your friends. Sign up and subscribe to our YouTube channel and all of these other things. Personally, I really don't know what all these icons are. But uh, but younger people, whatever they are, sign up and subscribe to these kinds of things. Uh, Bruce told me that this is a great DVD that explains human body. We only have a couple left. This is really devotional, very worshipful, explains how humans are able to balance and how our eyes work and all of those things. And this morning I talked about replacing God with sacred posture. We have a DVD on that. But if there is one book or one resource that you should really get, it's this one right here called Creation, Basics, and Beyond. It's a question and answer book dealing everything from cosmology to biology to geology. It is very, very useful, and um, we, we price it very reasonably, and I think it would be a really good resource. So hopefully, with this talk, we have inspired you to share things with your friends and get equipped and go out there and share your faith. Amen? We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.